Hello, welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, very pleased to present to you my conversation with Yia Vang, the chef of Union Mong Kitchen in Minneapolis and host of a TV show on the Outdoors channel called Feral, which is about hunting and eating invasive species. I love the idea of eating invasive species like blue catfish in the Chesapeake and lionfish in the southeast. It seems like a great way to help protect indigenous wildlife, eat tasty food, and and give a break to the charismatic and delicious seafood that we eat too much of. I've been reporting on eating invasive species for a while now. I even was interviewed on the Weather Channel about it once, a few months before the pandemic started. Do you remember that winter, right before the pandemic, when iguanas in Florida were freezing to death and falling out of trees and landing on people? My interviewer on the Weather Channel, whose name I forget, seemed particularly interested in seeing those iguanas on restaurant dinner plates, but I let him know that that wasn't a thing. At least it isn't yet. I mean, who knows? Experts have told me that it wouldn't be possible for us to eat enough invasive species to make a real dent in their populations, but I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. We have managed to fish Atlantic salmon and cod to near extinction. Why couldn't we do it with animals we don't want to have around? I mean, it would mean turning lionfish into fish sticks and patties and salads. But we could do that, in theory. I think. I I didn't actually end up discussing this very much with Yeo Vang because I'm more interested in his Hmong heritage. The Hmong are an ethnic group from the highlands of mainland Southeast Asia, particularly Laos, but also Thailand, Vietnam, and southwestern China. They came to the United States in pretty large numbers in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, and many of them ended up settling in places like the Twin Cities with, to say the least, radically different climates from the highlands of Southeast Asia. But they adapted, of course, and they have a story to tell. Yia Vang is helping to tell that story. I hope you will stay tuned and listen to it. Yia Vang, nice to meet you. Great to meet you. Are you, I don't, you're, you're certainly pretty, I'm pretty sure the first Hmong chef that I've met. There aren't a whole <laughs> Although I did live in Thailand for a while, so I I probably met some Hmong people there. And, and I grew up in Denver, which is where a lot of Hmong people settled before they moved to Minneapolis. So Yeah, yep. Yeah, there's a there's a big uh, group that settled there. Yeah. So are you from Laos or did you grow up in Minneapolis or nope. Uh I was um I was born in Thailand after the war. So it was I was uh, was we were most of my siblings, we were born in a, a little refugee camp, and then we came to St. Paul in 1988. So. Cool. Well, welcome, even though it's been a long time. Glad to have you here. <laughs> and you are the chef of? Uh, Union Monk Kitchen. That's the one, yes. Mm-hmm. And you're opening a new restaurant, and mm-hmm. you have a TV series called Feral. Yep. Uh, let's talk about all of that first. Let, let's let's give our audience a, a primer on Hmong cuisine. How how would you describe it? 
Yeah. So, you know, the best way that I always describe Hmong food is that Hmong food isn't a type of food. It's a philosophy of food. So it's a whole encompassing idea of uh, what food is. Um, food is something that's very close to our people. And it's close to our heart because we're a people group that doesn't have a nation state of our own. Uh, always driven from different areas and lands because of war, because of, you know, whatever, you know, weather, history, whatever in history. So one thing that we have close to us is our food and our food is our cultural DNA. I say, I always say that with our food, it's, you know, our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat so that if you want to know our people, you have to know our food because our food actually tells the story of where we've been, where we are and where, where we're going. So a lot of the food that, um, that the Hmong people are kind of familiar, like that people are familiar with is it has a lot of South, it's based on a lot of Southeast Asian um, kind of flavor profiles. But with the, a large group of population of Hmong people living here in the United States, you know, in all the different regions of the U.S. also affects the way that we cook now. So if we go back and say, hey, what's Hmong food 50 years ago? It looks a little different than Hmong food today. So sure. it's always in transit. You know, our food is always in transit and it's always telling the story of uh, where we are and where we're going. That's nice. So how how is a St. Paul Hmong mm-hmm. meal going to be different from one that you might have in the mountains of Laos or in Thailand? Yep. Yeah. So a lot of our food here in, uh, you know, in the Twin Cities is the way we do monk food here is it's very, you know, seasonal. So, for example, uh, a lot of the mustard greens and a lot of the vegetables that we pull from the summer, we have to pickle or we have to ferment so it holds through the fall and the winter. We're also focused on a lot of root vegetables, roasting root vegetables, you know, uh, because you know some people might say, well, that's super Norwegian of you guys. But I'm like, yeah, look what we're living with, you know, like, right. <laughs> of course, like, I don't deny that, you know, but what it is, is it's like, how do we finish it? A lot of times we finish it with different herbs, you know, finish it with some, you know, real simple like fish sauce, oyster sauce in there, you know, so these are the things that we know. Um, also a big part of our diet is noodles. So different, doing different kinds of noodles, you know, but again, it's using the terroir, it's using what's around us. So the way that we do our food here is different than, you know, it might be a little different than Hmong people in Sacramento. You know, it might be a little different than Hmong people who live in Boca Raton or Little Rock, Arkansas, or the Hmong people who live, you know, up in the Pacific Northeast. It's a little different, you know. But at the end, I think that what connects us is our history, our story, you know, and that story and that history of pain, suffering, you know, that really connects us all together. So what are what are some of the popular dishes at Union Hmong Kitchen? Yeah, so a few of our popular dishes, and we keep it very basic and simple there. For one... Uh, you know, the, the monk sausage we do is based on a recipe my father uh, showed me when I was a kid, and we've been working on it ever since then. Um, so that's a very big staple that we have there. Uh, and then we have, you know, the way that we do our chicken, it's, you know, we you, we roast it and then we finish it in the fryer. So it's like a really crispy fried chicken. Um, um, the way that we do, uh, you know, we have uh, like, uh, for example, our, our steak that we do. Um, it's, it's a, it's a flank steak. So it's using these off quote unquote off cuts or these cuts that most, it's not your prime cut, you know, quote unquote, uh, but you know, really just injecting a lot of our, I I would call it is our mong sofrito, which is uh, lemongrass, ginger, garlic, shallots, and Thai chilies. And we, that's, you know, that's that base, uh, 
aromatic that we always constantly use in a lot of our uh, soups, a lot of our stocks, a lot of our, you know, just base stir fry cooking, you know, that basically that's it. And, but we marinate that with our, you know, with our steaks. Uh, and then we love doing whole fish. It's an homage to my father, you know, who loves eating whole fish. So a lot of times it's a, it's a bronzini. We use a bronzini because bronzini is a little fattier. So it's a little bit more forgiving, you know, especially when you use it and if you throw it in the fryer or you throw it on the grill. So, and then making a really good, we have this like, you know, funky crab sauce we throw right on top of it. And so it's, it's made so that you can eat it with purple sticky rice. Mm. And that's the big thing with the rice. We always say the rice is the equalizer. If you feel like a dish has like, it's very full in umami, full in saltiness. That's why you have the sticky rice. Right. To, to absorb those flavors and kind of spread it mm -hmm. out so you can enjoy it on yeah. your palate. Some awesome yep. sticky rice. It's our version of the dinner roll, as we call it. Yeah, well, and sticky rice, you eat kind of like yep. a dinner roll. You eat it with yep. and you dip it yep. in things and stuff. So mm -hmm. you said lemongrass, ginger, shallot, garlic, Thai chili mm -hmm. is your sofrito. Yeah, it's our sofrito. That sounds great. And similar, like that's similar throughout Southeast Asia, you got. Yep, yep. Similar combination. Yep. Mm -hmm. So you you mentioned that roasting vegetables are is super Norwegian. Are there other mm -hmm. like, mini, apart from like local produce? Are there other kind of food ways? Yeah, Neapolitans that you guys use. Yeah. So for example, you know, for a while we did a hot dish. Uh, it's our uh, we call it the Minnesota Mung hot dish, where basically I mean, in essence, it's a casserole, right? But like one day I was looking at the the, the formation of a hot dish casserole, whatever you want to call it. Here we call it a hot dish up here in the north. Mm -hmm. Um. And one of the things that I really thought about is like, oh, the, you know, the, the gravy, quote unquote gravy for the hot dish. I'm like, that's our curry. That's basically, it's a curry that's reduced down. So we took a red coconut curry that we usually use for this noodle dish called kapong. And we reduced that down. We took the roasted vegetables, added in there. We took the mung sausage, chop it up, add it in there, you know, and then you put it in, we put it in a cast iron pan and then we throw some fried, you know, fried, deep fried tater tots on top. You know, mm. and if you really think about it, I'm like, that's a hot dish. It's it's literally, it's a, we jokingly call it a reverse poutine, right? So yeah. it's gravy, it's, you know, it's gravy, it's rich, it's really just flavorful, you know, sauce. And then you throw something like, you know, fried potatoes in it. Uh, so we were able to do that. And it was really fun because it was, it was still true to us, true to the flavors that we grew up with. But then it's also this building this bridge between a lot of, you know, Norwegian Swiss you know, friends of ours who are like, oh, yeah, I grew up eating that. I grew up eating that. But ours was like out of a, you know, uh, Campbell's, con you know, a cream of mushroom condensed soup or whatever. Right. But they're like, oh, we totally get it. So it was our way of saying, look, like if you look at these elements by themselves, they might be a little different. But when we put them together, they actually have, they're actually speaking the same story. You know, because then we dug into the story of the hot dish. So, well, the way that the hot dish came to be is because early 1900s, this is how the grandma and mom would make these big, you know, make a lot of, you know, a lot of food for the church. And because, and then it was like, let's just get vegetables, let's get everything. And then let's just pour this cream of whatever on it and let's bake it off and throw, you know, throw potatoes in it. And it was very rarely that they would actually even have any protein in there. And if it was, it'd be like a pound of ground beef or something like that. And if you read that story, if you understand that story, that's the story of the Hmong people. It's that suffering. It's that how do we make, how does one generation keep another generation alive so they can keep passing the story down? And that's the Hmong people right there. Yeah, feed them a lot of yummy, tasty starch in large portions. Absolutely. 
So, um, Hmong sausage you mentioned. How what's mm -hmm. what's distinctive about a, a Hmong sausage? What kind yeah, of so so our, our Hmong sausage. When we always when I talk about Hmong sausages, I say the, the grind is more coarse. And the reason why the grind is more coarse is you you want a lot of that fat in there because the fat does all the work. Mm -hmm. So if you if you you don't, it's not like an Eastern European European style kind of sausage where everything's kind of emulsified together. You don't want the emulsification. You want texture. So the grind is more coarse, and it's 70, 70 30 uh, shoulder to belly because you you want and and where it's all about those little pieces of fat in there because when you when you grill it off, you kind of let you don't grill it hot. You want to make sure that it has that distance between the heat and the fire and you let it kind of slow roast because then that fat's going to render. And as that fat renders, it creates these pockets of pork fat within the sausage. And so the meat of the, 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 the pork meat is just sitting in there bathing in its own sausage fat. While that, it, while that's happening, you also have the aromatic, you have the ginger, the lemongrass, the shallots, you know, um, the Thai chilies, the fish sauce, and all of the all of that flavor. It's like a brighter flavor, especially with that ginger, you know, kick in there. It's a brighter flavor. It's not as, you know, you don't want it super smoky because it's in a smoked sausage, right? Mm -hmm. It's still very clean. And then, you know, and then when you pull it out, it's all slicing it, and then you're creating the perfect bite, right? You get a little sticky rice, you get that slice of mung sausage, and then you get a little bit of, you know, kotsal, which is our pepper sauce. You get a little bit of that on there. And then you get that perfect bite. And then once you hit that bite that hits you and you're like, man, it's so rich and fatty. Then you get, you get, you go grab a little bit of the fermented mung mustard green that mom makes every season. You get a little bit of that. You throw that in and that sour tartiness from the mung mustard green that's been fermented. It cuts right through that fat. And there you've created the perfect bite that describes mung food. That sounds so good. I would eat that for sure. You know, it's interesting, the hot dish uh, as you said, speaks to the history of, of the Hmong people as well as mm -hmm. uh, poor no Norwegian immigrants, mm -hmm. but also it's, it's a way, I assume, for you guys to adjust to winter, which is not something that is yeah. the custom in Southeast Asia, but obviously you have like Game of Thrones style winters in, uh, yeah. in Minnesota. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah, this winter here, actually, this um, this winter has been pretty harsh, but the thing that gets us through is our noodles. Like big bowls of noodles, you know, like uh, our pho, our kopongs, kopia, kasoe, you know, like those are the things that are getting us through. And it's funny because like if you go to the streets of Laos, Thailand and Vietnam, they eat that no matter what the weather is, right? It could be 95 degrees and humid outside and they still have a, they're still hovering over a bowl of pho. Mm -hmm. Here, it's like that is the best way to comfort you when it's cold is that warm broth and then that steam that hits your face and all those aromatics. And then especially if you have kapong, which is like a really like kind of a, it has a kick in the face kind of curry soup and you're sniffing like the best thing that we watch in our shop is watching people sniff as they eat. You know, they're like kind of and wiping, dabbing their self and wiping off the sweat. I mean, that stuff will get you warm so fast. And then the moment you walk outside and that cold wind hits you hard, it might, it is like that perfect feeling ever. It's bracing. Wakes you right up. Absolutely. So um, how did you get into cooking? Yeah, so it's kind of a really funny story. I'm actually, my whole career has been trying to, um, I wouldn't say career, my whole life has been trying to get out of cooking. Like I, I never really wanted to do it. 
I always, uh, so when I was younger, it was, it was a job. That's what it was. You know, you get 10 bucks an hour, nine bucks an hour. And then when I went to college, I went to college for interpersonal communication and a minor in PR marketing. And I was like, I'm never, ever going to go back to the, you know, into the restaurant. And, and after college, the only jobs I could really find are restaurant jobs. So I'm working these restaurant jobs and I don't really think I'm that good of a cook. I think I was good enough to keep up with all the tickets. And then I would say 10, 12 years ago, I just found this resurgence of falling in love, like learning how to really fall in love with your first love. Like I knew I loved cooking, but I didn't know why. And so there was, it was the search of my why. And I, I, um, in our, uh, our, our restaurants, we always talk about, uh, we have this model or this mantra. We always say that every dish has a narrative. You follow that narrative long enough and close enough, you get to the people behind the food. And once you're there, it's actually not about food. It's about people. Food is a catalyst into cultivating great relationships. And so I myself did that. I said, hey, what's the narrative of this food that revives my soul? And I ended up at the table with my mom and dad. And I listened to their story. And I listened to the things that... So I wasn't this punk kid, like, was like, whatever, mom, let me live my own life. I was almost 30. And I listened to their story. And I, and I realized that, dang, by the time dad was my age, he fought a war, had some kids. And he lived in a refugee camp for 10 years. He survived the camp. He helped and got us to this country by the time he was my age. And here I am trying to figure out what my next step is. And and dad, by the time he was my age, he lived this full life. He lived two lifetimes. And he made sacrifices. And he realized that it he realized that my life is not my own. And what it is, is he looked at us as children and he said, My life is now making sure that you have life and you have freedom. And when I realized that and that sank in, it changed the whole tune of what I was doing. Food no longer was about cooking and to get recognition, to get named. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's about their legacy. It's about how do you preserve the legacy of two of the most important people in your life. They're the two of the people that for the reason that you have life is because of them. So what we do in our restaurant, the food we cook, the, the stories we tell, it's traced back to their legacy. It's traced back to who they are. The awards we win, it goes back to them. Because people want to know me, they have to know them because they can't know me without knowing them. You want to know the food, you have to know them because that's where I learned it from. You want to know all about hospitality, you want to know how to care, love people with grace, it's from them. that We are merely reflections of who they are. So then that changed the way I thought about food. And it became something where it's like I eat, sleep, breathe this stuff, you know. I go to bed, I'm excited the next morning, let's get up, let's, you know, what's the next project we're doing? You know, what, what are the, you know, what are the shows we're shooting? What are, who are the people we're talking to? What platform are we talking on? I get excited about that because I get to talk about them. And so you studied interpersonal communications and you're doing that. You're just doing that through food. Yeah, in a way, you know, it's funny. Some of my old college professors would always say, hey, like, I'm so glad you're using your major. And I'm like, am I? <laughs> so sometimes when you're like unclogging like toilets and, you know, you're fixing pipes, you know, and there you're taking garbage out that's spilled all over and you're like, am I really using my <laughs> Well, yes, interpersonal communications is yeah. always a useful thing. And obviously you have this TV show, Feral. Can you, can you yeah. talk about this? Yeah, Feral was uh, two years ago or something like that. Yeah, these producers came to me from Intuitive Concept and they, you know, they, they make a bunch of great shows and um, Emmy award winning shows actually. And they say, Hey, we have an idea. It's kind of out there, but want to see if you're into it because they, I, cause I love cooking outdoors. I love wood fire cooking. Like that's just my style. I'm a Wisconsin boy. Originally I'm from Wisconsin. So I'm a Wisconsin boy. I love fishing. I love hunting. I love doing all these things. Now, now I'm not like an expert by no means in these areas at all, but I love it. Like, you know, I love 
throwing a fire, starting a fire and throwing meat on it. That's my thing. I love doing it. And so the idea was let's go around the country and let's find animals that are either invasive or they're destroying the ecosystem that they're a part of or just animals that most people won't eat. And so we're like, okay, let's do it. And then uh, we shot a, you know, we shot like a little sizzle reel and then uh, uh, Outdoor Channel picked it up and said, yeah, uh, give us eight episodes. So we're like, okay, cool. And we just went and we kind of just like, it was kind of like, okay, let's just go. And so I just got thrown right into the mix. The first day on the first season, first episode, first day was down in Destin, Florida, 95 degrees, humid and hot. And we were going for lionfish, you know, um, in uh, 150 feet down, you know, down uh, in the ocean, you know, for lionfish. I had no oh, idea what I was doing. Invasive species. Yes. Yes. Very, very invasive species. Yeah, you got to eat and the so heart of those little bastards. Oh, yeah, dude. I am totally down. And they are so delicious. Like, people are, like, weirded about it, but I'm like, dude, like, yeah, they look a little weird, and they look beautiful, but, man, it's like a snapper. It's just, like, oh, so, so delicious, yeah. Are they hard to butcher? I know a lot of those invasive no, species. No. Not really. I mean, they have, like, little spikes on the side, so you have to be careful of that, because those spikes are uh, poisonous. And what it, it, it's, it's like a really bad bee sting. That's what happens if you get poked by them. So so right away, you have these gloves on. You, you, you cut the, the spikes off and then you just fillet it like you would fillet a different, you know, a regular fish. I use mine whole. I just took mine and scored it, salted, wrapped in banana leaves and then grilled it in the banana leaves and then made this uh, curry, the red curry sauce with coconut cream and then just pour it right on top. And you could feed it to your dad who loves a whole fish. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's kind of an homage to him. He loves eating whole fish. Mom loves making whole fish for him. That's cool. What are some other invasive species that you? Uh, then we went to wild boar. That was really cool, just to learn just the devastation of wild boars and what they're doing to farmers in uh, south, uh, in like southern, um, uh, in southern Florida there. And you know, I mean, it's all the way to Texas, all the way to like you know, Ar- you know, Arkansas, down in that area. So we did that. Uh, we had, um, you know, and then and then uh, Burmese pythons in the Everglades. Uh, that was uh, quite quite the trip, and it was really fun. And uh, I tried to get this, I tried to catch one, and it turned around and bit me. And so I got bit by a snake. And nice. I think that makes me the cool uncle to all my nieces and nephew. And when their friends come over, they always like make me show them where I got bit in the hand. Like, oh, my uncle got bit. Snake. I go, my uncle, yeah, show him in the hand. Like, show him. My friend wants to see where you got bit. And I'm like, dude, it's not, it's not. The, the scar is not really there, you know. So. Uh, but that was really fun. I learned a lot about the invasiveness of, you know, Burmese python. And then we go from, like, all the crazy, like, oh, we're doing this, to, like, iguanas, you know, like, chasing iguanas, shooting iguanas, to, like, you know, rusty crayfish in northern Minnesota. You know, hmm. there's a there's a lake up there where the rusty crayfish has taken over, and they're, and they're destroying the ecosystem. And you go from there to, you know, kind of northern uh, uh, Wisconsin, where we're, uh, where we're having, uh, hunting, I use that word loosely, hunting uh, the the mystery snail, you know? So, so you go in there and then we go down to uh, Texas, central Texas, uh, axis deer, you know, they're super invasive in that area there in central Texas, you know, and they're just rolling around and, you know, yeah. So we're kind of all over. And then, then, and then we were very blessed after we were done. They're like, Hey, we love it. We love what we're seeing so far. Go ahead and do season two. So we got a season two right in the hopper. And so that, you know, I'm not sure when that comes out, but It'll be later this year, and so that one took us all to from to Jackson Hole, you know, and back to Minnesota, you know, back to Wisconsin. So we were all over for that again too. So yeah. So what was the trickiest of those invasive species to cook? 
I would say trickiest was probably the, the Python because I've never had Python before. And I wasn't sure what the texture of the meat was going to be like. But I knew that it was a little sinewy-ish. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it's rubbery a little bit. I've heard, I read, I read up on it. So I grilled it. We cut it real thin. I grilled it, chopped it up into smaller pieces, and then put it into a lettuce wrap. That sounds so, good. Yeah, and I think that that was kind of the move because it's like we're still using it, but again, you know, you're, you're kind of almost having this like little salad with it, you know. So yeah, seasoned with mung sofrito. Uh, when we, yeah, we did the rub down with the, with the, uh, with the snake and then threw it on. But it's, what's really cool is you, you, we go out with the guides and the guides show us how they do it. And then, you know, and then we do, and then I do my version, you know, I do, you know, my way. So it's been, it's a really cool way because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like a fish out of water right when we go. So I'm like, I don't know what we're doing. And then by the end, we're all buddy, buddy, cause we're out there for three or four hours. And for some of them, we're out there all day. And then the next scene where we uh, were cooking, we're all buddy buddy by then. We're just like, okay, let's do this, you know. Sounds fun. Yeah, absolutely, it's fun. I I, I tell uh, my some of my good friends, old college buddies, I'm like, I would never imagine in a million years that this kid from Podunk, Central Wisconsin, will be down in the Everglades with a guy named Dusty Crumb, big old goatee, raspy voice, thick Southern accent, chasing down Burmese python. And it bit you. And it bit me, yes. And I was so mad, too. I was like, ah, I can't believe it. And the whole time, Dusty's like, ah, it's happened to me thousands of times. So, you know, I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but pythons are constrictors. So I would think they wouldn't yeah. bite much. They just wrap themselves they actually, Well, what they do, the first move is to bite because they got sharp razor teeth. And it's not poisonous. They bite, then they, they hold their cre- the animal down, and then they wrap. Oh. That's what they did. So when I got bit, I literally it bit me, and then I pulled away really fast. It like kind of tore it off. Yeah. So but you didn't want to be eaten by a python. No, no, it was a seven footer, so it's still it's a little freaky. Yeah, I yes, yeah. I don't think I would have enjoyed that. You know, it, it's funny, Brad. A lot of my buddies are like, yeah, man, like I would just go in there and I'd be like, this is like, nope. Yeah, talk all the trash you want to me, but the moment you see this seven foot slithering thing in front of you, and you have to go behind the net and grab it and do it so fast that it doesn't turn around and get your hand, like I'm like, okay, you guys are all talk, but trust me, when you get there, it's a whole different game. So, yeah, yeah, no, I would, I would <laughs> scream and run away like a little girl. Not to say that little girls can't be tough and kill a python if they need to. I'm not like that, but. I think it's funny because like after I was done, like half, like majority of the crew was like, dude, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, what are you talking about? And you're like, oh, I'm definitely afraid of snakes. And I'm like, what the heck, man? How come none of you guys ever told me? Like nobody told me that, you know? <laughs> well, nobody walks around and says, hi, I'm afraid yeah. of snakes. How are you? You know? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, well, I should have thrown it at you guys. <laughs> so when you're, when you're filming this stuff, who is running Union Mom Kitchen? So man, we're very blessed. I have, I have a really incredible team. There's not about, 25 people on staff, you know, full-time, part-time. Then we have an executive team, which, you know, is filled with uh, chefs and operators, you know, and finance people. And so they, they, uh, we, when we planned out me being gone for filming, I, you know, give them my schedule like months out, like, Hey, I'm, you know, these are the pods that I'm being gone. I'm gone. And a lot of times, you know, it's like, Hey, if anything big comes up, you can always text, we can always, you know, figure things out. But I mean, 
Red, these guys are incredible operators. They're incredible chefs. We've built a great team. It's taken us a while, but our team understands like, hey, like, you know, he is gone. So we got to lock down, you know, and do different things. And even when I'm here, I sometimes I feel like I'm not needed in a good way. And so they, they've been really good in helping me do what I enjoy doing and what I can bring to the company. So everybody has this kind of value of like, what, what do we bring to this company? You know, how do we all do this? How do we work together? And our, our, our foundational value that we use, a line that we always say is always moving forward together. We're always moving forward together. So, yeah. How, how did you assemble such a good team? As you might've heard, it's hard to find good yeah. help anywhere and certainly in restaurants. It is. I uh, I come from a, a sports background, so like high school, you know, in college, played football and did sports. So, so we're always we always knew when the scouts are coming in, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm always having an eye out there for really good prospects, you know. Uh, a lot of, our team is made up of people who are kind of burnt out from the restaurant industry, to be completely honest, you know. And being able to say, how do we create a place, uh, industry? Uh, how do we create a workplace that the workplace that we would envision to have? You know, and so that's what it is. And most of them, you know, we started all out together, like, you know, scraping pots together, like doing pop-ups, you know, late nights, whatever. And then, you know, once in a while, we were very blessed to have, you know, certain opportunities that gave us more credibility, more notoriety. And then from there, we were able to, you know, bring in a little bit more income. And then it was like, okay, we could relax a little bit in this area and then start visioning out like, okay, what is, you know, 2023 looks like what is you know our five-year plan so being able to do that so it's, it took it took like six years seven years to be able to, just to get there so again it's a lot of like working with different chefs and cooks that have said hey we believe in your vision like how do we come along with you so it's yeah and you you also have vini is that open or it's going to open or where, where, yeah so we're we're finishing some financial uh some some of the financial part for that you know i mean everything's done we have all the plans ready. We have everything ready. Literally, it's just once we finish all the financing, uh, then it's go time and we're building. So we're just finishing, we're just rounding up some financing. During COVID, that really, COVID really hurt us hard with some financing stuff. So we had to go on like kind of, you know, um, we had to go, we had to, we had to keep uh, Union Monk Kitchen. So, you know, we had to just kind of slowly just um, kind of do our thing uh, by keeping Union Monk Kitchen afloat. We had to put a little pause in it and, you know, and we had to allocate finances, I guess. That's the best way of saying it, to, to Union Monk Kitchen to kind of put it on survival mode. And and that's in a food hall, right, Union Monk Kitchen? Yep, Union Monk Kitchen's in a food hall, yep. And then we also have, you know, what we started a few months ago is we started a, a – we are, are we have a commissary kitchen that's really big, and, uh, and then it has this dining area, and we turned that into a rotating pop-up. So, oh, um, yeah, it's called Slurp Noodle Pop-Up job and so we're doing noodles for a q1 and then q2 we'll switch the concept and we'll constantly four times a year we'll switch the concept and every three months we'll have a different pop-up in there that we can you know play it's kind of like our playgrounds our test kitchen we have ideas of what concept do we want to go up with next stuff like that so yeah and so we, we're kind of running that and that's been really good and that coincides with union monk kitchen really well union monk kitchen is literally 280 square feet it's a little stall wow uh, and then we're going from there and we're doing that. And then Vini itself, uh, this past summer and fall, what we did was we did a residency at this um, event center. So we would run, um, we ran all these different kinds of um, uh, dinners, like, you know, seated dinners, course out dinners and stuff like that. Yeah. 
There, there seems to be a lot of that going on the whole, but both the pop up mm -hmm. and the kind of residency to test out mm -hmm. stuff. It's, mm -hmm. it's such a great way to kind of, you know, prove whether people are interested in your concept. Absolutely, and it's also it's also what we're used to because we were a pop up for a while, and we just like you know I think that sometimes I think that sometimes we're a little embarrassed about the fact that we were a pop up, but I always say that hey man, that's our strength, dude. Like we run and gun. You know, shoot from the hips at times and i think that makes us stronger and then you know other places where they're so used to like okay you know the, the stove's right there the oven's right here where it's just like nah man we got some thinner blocks and some wires like we got to figure out how to create an oven you know we you know growing up we watched the show macgyver you know uh, right, richard yeah. dean anderson macgyver and uh, my dad uh would always be thinking in the back and my mom would always be like oh yeah your dad's being macgyver in the back and then we just slowly call it mungivering so we have right. this thing where we're like, we're just like, hey, we got a bum guy we're out of the, the situation you know, right now, you know, we got some duct tape, some toothpicks and, uh, you know, some cinder blocks. So we got to build the kitchen with that, you know. Well, and I think that probably is a Hmong custom also. I mean, you're traditionally are mountain people kind of mm -hmm. living in the countryside. I'm sure there were lots of times when you found cinder blocks or, or when your ancestors found yeah. cinder blocks and yeah. found some coconut yeah. husks and started cooking things over them. Absolutely. I mean, that's, it's funny because like, to me, like when I watched my dad do that in the, you know, in his yard or, you know, in the little wooded area he has where he builds his own makeshift grill. It's funny because we bought, I bought him all these like real nice fancy grill, but he still goes to that like rink and dink cinder block thing that he put together from, you know, Home Depot, you know, and, and it's amazing to be like, I, I love that because I just feel his connection to like, this is home to me. You know, and, and I love doing that, too. So sometimes it's as simple as buying cinder blocks for, you know, a couple bucks, you know, at, you know, Home Depot or whatever, you know, and, and setting up a fire and then throwing meat on fire. Yeah, and that's such an elemental way to eat and to enjoy food and to to commune with what you're eating, whether that's a, a python or, or a wild boar or something else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so the the pop up contest slurp is it always going to be slurp and then you change? What yeah, it's it's gonna, uh, it's gonna be slurp till the end of March, and then we'll have a brand new concept ready. Yeah, and um, is it all gonna be Hmong related, or are you gonna do different things? Some of it will be, but it'll be from us. It'll be from our team. You know, like so, like I said, like you cook from who you are. So if one of our team members has you know is you know if he's you know like for example like we have a dude who's ecuadorian that says hey i really want to do an ecuadorian chinese mix great awesome let's let's do it you know and this is what's so cool about it. it's three months and then we get to roll the crap out of it and we get to you know talk to our you know to our chefs and our cooks and say hey how do you put you know how do you put your heart into this you know and how do you get the word out about stuff like that do you use you know traditional instagram kind of stuff or are you doing the tiktok or yeah <laughs> Actual off, like, uh, yeah, I'm too old for TikTok. Uh, we're too poor for actual advertising. So <laughs> Instagram it is, you know. Uh, I think that uh, we've uh, been really good uh, in building kind of a fan base. So we've been, we have very loyal people and we've been, uh, the, the media around here and even nationally have been um, very, very um, good to us. So we're able to say announce whatever we need to announce. And our communications director, Lauren, is amazing. She knows how to you know, strategically lay all that stuff out. She knows how to write, you know, great copies and, you know, people, you know, all just kind of flock to. And it's, we're very, very blessed to be in that position. Nice. And you were just named a semifinalist for the Beard Awards, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always funny because when they announce those things, they never tell us. Like I, like I didn't know. Like my phone kept blowing up. I was in a meeting. I was like, didn't finish with the meeting, and the phone got blown up. I'm like, what the heck's wrong with you guys? You know, because like, and it's like all my buddy, other buddies, like, Dude, congrats, congrats, and like I literally had friends who was like, awesome, thumbs up. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I thought they were talking about the noodle shop. So I was like, oh, great, man. Come on by. Grab lunch. Yeah, glad you like And then, it. yeah. So, like, people are like, wait, the, like, the, you know, JBF doesn't tell you guys? I'm like, no, they don't tell us anything. Like, we don't even know. I don't even know when it comes out. I literally don't know. Like, no. And, and it's also, like, to be very honest, too, it's just, like, we have so much stuff going on. So I don't, like, sit and refresh every day, you know? So it's like, I don't know. It's just, hey, man, like, that's awesome. Again, I feel very honored, very blessed. But it's like, we got noodles to sell. We got chicken right. to sell. We got whole fish to sell. So yeah, and and it's great. But you're one of 450 semifinalists. So you know, yes. Come on yeah. <laughs> um, but still awesome. Congratulations. It's very yeah. You yeah. Thank you. On your resume forever. And then, yeah. And it was really a pleasure getting to talk to you, get to know you. I'm. I want to now go to the Twin Cities and eat your food. For sure. Yeah, we'd love to host you. Anytime you're in town, just shoot us an email or whatever. We'll love to host you. I'll check it out. Well, you have yeah. a real pleasure, and uh, I hope to do it again soon. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate it.